You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It's Friday, May 15th. We've got our CEO, Ral Pal, standing by with senior editor Ash Bennington, and they're ready to give you their macro analysis. But first, April showers have brought May flowers, but for many U.S. retailers, it's a silent spring. U.S. headline retail numbers out today down 16.4% month over month for April, much worse than the 12% expected by economists and almost double the 8.3% drop last March. By sector, the worst drops were in electronics and appliance stores, which was down 60.6%, and in clothing and clothing accessories, which plummeted a shocking 78.8%. The only category to show an increase in spending was non-store sales, which was up 8.4%. This includes online retailers like Amazon and shows that online buying continues to dominate as people are reluctant to go to stores. This precipitous fall in retail activity shows that consumers have a heightened sense of thrift as the labor market continues to tighten. And as some states start to reopen, consumer spending will likely pick up. The question going forward is how quickly? And are the brick and mortar retailers sufficiently capitalized to weather the storm? In other news, today Ral sat down with legendary investor Howard Marks. It's a fascinating conversation about where we are in the credit cycle and how investors can position themselves going forward. Definitely check that out if you haven't already. And on Monday, Raoul will be speaking to the great Mike Novogratz. Stay tuned for that. And lastly, a new syndrome is popping up that's connected to the coronavirus, and it's affecting children. It had previously been thought that children were largely spared the effects of the coronavirus. But now, this pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome is throwing a wrench in that theory. Many children who were diagnosed with this syndrome had tested positive for coronavirus or had positive antibody tests, which means that they had it earlier. 73 cases were reported in New York and more in Louisiana, Mississippi, and California, as well as at least 50 cases reported in Europe. This new syndrome in children introduces a complicating factor in our ongoing battle against the virus, and we'll be monitoring it closely going forward. And with that, I'll turn it over to senior editor Ash Bennington and our fearless CEO, Rao Pal. Ash, take it away. Thanks, Jack. Interesting color around that dismal retail sales print from earlier today. I'm Ash Bennington from New York. I'm joined today by Rao Pal, our CEO and co-founder. It's Friday, March 15, 2020. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. How are you doing today, Rao? I'm good. It's Friday. We've survived another week. We've survived another week. That's right. And the market survived pretty unscathed. Nothing really happened. It's one of those weird weeks. Yeah. We've had a number of counterintuitive weeks, haven't we? Yeah, we have. But, I, you know, I, I spoke about last week. I think the narrative, the hope narrative is somewhat fading. You can feel the market's feeling a little bit struggling, a little bit heavier. 
Um, you know, the bond market got, you know, the yields fell a little bit last week and then kind of stabilized at a new low level. Just makes you feel that, okay, the onus is going from the bulls, uh, from the bears to the bulls now. The bulls have to prove their case going forwards and the bears have probably got a slightly easier ride um, because so much is priced in. So let's wait and see. I, I can't get to grips with whether we're topping out yet or not and it's not really a call I want to make yet. Um, but, you know, I just noticed that volatility is coming down. Markets are, are trying to move around but not really getting anywhere. Yeah, and that will bring us nicely to the conversations you had with Howard Marks uh, and Kyle Bass earlier this week. But before we do that, Raul, you mentioned the hope phase. Can you recap, uh, for those of us who aren't as familiar as you are, with the framework that you've put around it? Because I think it's a really simple and elegant way of understanding, in the broadest sense, what may be happening in markets right now. Yes. Markets often come in three phases uh, in terms of bear markets. It's very common. So if you think about the most classic was 1929, but it's repeated in the Nikkei and the S&P, all of these times. And we get this sharp move down, this grind rally higher that usually retraces about 50% or more of the original down move. And then it rolls over and the third wave comes. So the first wave is what I refer to as the liquidation phase, the quick panic. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We got this wrong. So with the virus, it was very clear what happened then. And there's the hope phase. Oh, but the numbers are going to get better going forwards now. Oh, you know, we don't need to worry about that. There's probably a virus coming. And look what the Fed have just done and the government. I mean, and everybody's doing the same. So surely this is all going to be fine. Mm. And then there's the reality. Now, this is the hard part. What is the reality? My version of reality is insolvency. I believe growth will not get positive enough to generate enough cash flow for companies and people to cover their debt, debt servicing. The last time we had an insolvency event was the 1930s, where it was a mass insolvency. So that's what I'm worried about right now. Other people may have a third leg. Other people may have a belief that, yes, we could go back down again, but then we kind of more stimulus comes and we grind higher. But that that's the kind of framework that I'm using in the hope phase is now, I think, making way to the next phase, which we need to see. Well, you know, that's interesting. And it sets us up really nicely to talk about the conversation you had with Howard Marks that came out today that I thought was so engaging because it took the framework uh, and actually looked back and said, okay, but where were we when we began this cycle, right? When the coronavirus story broke, where were markets and how had they gotten there? Yeah, I mean, Howard, like myself, is a student of the business cycle. We look at it in different ways, um, but basically we're looking at the business cycle and we both reached the same conclusion that the business cycle was very long in the tooth and it was weak. And I've talked about this extensively on Real Vision that we had a number of issues outstanding from trade tariffs through to the effects of rising US interest rates through to then the oil price collapse and the, and the strong dollar and all of these things were creating a perfect storm and then COVID came along. So I think Howard was in that same camp. Although at this point, I think, like many, he's struggling to put a probability on what happens next. Right. And that's okay. I mean, that's why we did the series is not necessarily other answers. His hope, which is a bit bizarre, but he, that's his business, his distressed debt. His hope is to see the phase that I'm looking at. 
But the problem is, is, is the liquidation phase happened too fast and the Fed came too quickly for him to actually buy anything of real note. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what this next phase is. But, you know, Howard was very clear that it's uncertain to him. Yeah. And, you know, and speaking to Kyle, um, who I also spoke to during the week, I mean, Kyle was interesting because he kind of agrees with me that growth is likely to be slower. But he's in the camp of Hugh Hendry and several others, Brent Johnson, that maybe equities just go up anyway. And I don't know. Personally, for me, I think it's a Pavlovian response that people think that that QE in all forms raises the price of equities, so they buy equities. We know it doesn't work in Japan, and we know it doesn't work in Europe. We didn't know we know it didn't work in the UK, and it didn't work in Switzerland. It didn't work in all these other countries that have done it. But apparently, the the, the US is special. No, I think it's the investor mindset. Sure, could it be it's the reserve currency, blah, blah, blah? Maybe. But I think it's the emperor's new clothing. And I think the central bank has less influence over risk assets than people truly imagine. Yeah, you know, when you say mindset, it really, in some ways, uh, is a good lead into the, the sort of nuance and subtlety that was in both of those conversations and the way that both of those investors view the world. I thought it was really interesting to listen to uh, Howard Marks talk about effectively what he seemed to be suggesting was a balance of probabilities when you look at the uh, look at the business cycle and try and get a sense of where valuations are and what the probability of uh, of directional moves uh, up or down in the future will be. I thought it was really interesting when he told that story about uh, him buying four hundred and fifty million dollars uh, in uh, in high yield debt after the Lehman bankruptcy and how he mentioned the timing. I thought that was an interesting analog and metaphor for where we might be right now. Yes, although I didn't get the conviction <laughs> from him. It's interesting because some people, and this is dead right, this is investing. Not everybody should have answers, right? I, I love the in intellectual integrity of saying, I don't know. So I'll keep doing what I do and we'll see if bigger opportunities come along or not. Yeah. But we all know that at these levels, there's no the expected future return of almost all asset prices is close to zero. So in which case, it's very difficult for somebody like Howard, who's a distressed investor, to find value. Momentum investors, potentially there's more opportunity. And what Kyle did, which was interesting, is he said, fine, we understand this. And we understand there's this potential argument about short dollars, which I'm not sure he's a huge proponent of my argument about that. But he does say, well, listen, the problem is, is everybody's becoming anti-China right now. And they're going to starve China of capital flows. We saw that with the MSCI allocations and a bunch of other stuff this week. That it, and the Huawei stuff that came out as well feels like there's going to be a ratcheting up going into the election of China blaming. The probability of the Chinese currency weakening, as uh, Kyle suggested, is getting higher. And at the margin, the Hong Kong dollar getting weaker as well. So I thought that was interesting. I like to see people who think through knock-on effects. You, you, you analyze the situation now, and basically the situation there is the US dollar and the US consumer, you know, if those are not operational in the world, then it's very difficult for China to sell anything or get any dollars. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm one of the things that Kyle has always been uh, on the vanguard for for a number of years uh, is the intersection between the policy space 
uh, and the uh, macroeconomic outlook, especially vis-a-vis -vis China. So I'm always interested in listening to him talk about that. The other thing that I thought was interesting, as you suggested, Rao, was uh, the, the bifurcation of capital markets and the real economy that he was talking about. You know, I thought it was really interesting that he sort of framed it, and his argument is much more subtle and nuanced. These, these are my words, almost as a, as a battle between the, the stimulus response from the Fed and especially from fiscal policy uh, and the real damage being done to the real economy from <laughs> I've got two dogs. <laughs> Girls, can we just let me finish this? Thank you. I hope we leave that in. Yeah, I do too. No, enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's, walk, it's walk time. Right. Sorry, right, let's keep going. <laughs> Um, so, what, what what are your thoughts on on Kyle's view about sort of stimulus versus real economic damage? I don't think the stimulus is enough to paper over the craps, the craps, the cracks longer than three months. Mm. That's my view. And yes, they'll have to do more. Um, and I think that the whole world has set themselves up for a big cliff. As far as I understand it, almost everybody's planned for a roughly three month episode of of papering over the cash flows in the private sector. So we're getting to the end of that three months, June, July, then what? Well, we've probably got another gap before we get any stimulus. That's a big gap in markets. That's a big gap in demand. And I think it's gonna scare the hell out of people, particularly people who, who've taken the stimulus and are hoping that it's ongoing. So I, I'm concerned by the whole stimulus thing. It will continue and it will, ratchet up into the election and then after the election too. Yeah. Talking of stimulus, uh, some rather, uh, I guess one could say bearish remarks from uh, Jay Powell and also uh, mirrored by Loretta Meester uh, earlier in the week. What is your take on that? In what respect? Well, their view seems to be that uh, Loretta Meester was saying that the uh, view of a recovery is essentially an equal probability between uh, that and a more dire outcome, that there could be continued uh, a continued downswing uh, in the economy. I mean, it was really striking because it, it sounded as though she were saying it's almost a 50-50 shot. Well, well, Jay Powell used almost my terminology of uh, a liquidity event into a solvency event. And I'm like, huh. So they understand the issue they're facing here. And it's the deflation issue that they're not going to talk about for a while. Because once they do, they real people will realize how much trouble they're in. So I I think that is the problem that they know is they're facing finally the monster in the cupboard that they've been um, shying away from for the last 20 years. I mean, don't forget this whole central bank story has all been about don't let the 1930s happen again. Okay. Most people have learned, maybe, maybe they haven't, but I've observed that somebody who fears something like I'm terrified of falling off a ladder generally they get on a ladder and they fall off most people attract their fears yeah. and it's like the fed have attracted their own fear which was the theoretical argument that happened 20 years ago when i was at glg and goldman is what happens when you get to zero rates and then the deflation event occurs right the, that's what they've been fighting from day one. This is all the Bernanke stuff, the Greenspan stuff, the Yellen stuff, it's all been this. And, and voila, 
whatever they wanted, it's a, they didn't want, it's arrived. Um, so that's why I think there's that 50-50 coin toss, and I think that's dead right. I mean, I put it 60-40 in my favor that we go to a solvency event. But I think the Fed kind of starting to realize, much more than the market is, that this is a knife edge, and the Fed have realized is also, bingo, in a solvency event, liquidity doesn't matter. Yeah, it's not I'm... liquidity you need to replace, it's cash flow. The only way of doing that is fiscal stimulus. This is the only way. Problem is, is can you get enough fiscal stimulus done? And can you get the government to understand the severity of what this insolvency event will be? Probably not. Not until it happens. So it's fascinating times. We're living history right now. Yeah, we truly are. You know, another thing uh, that strikes me as being adjacent to that, um, the issue of uh, inflation versus deflation, uh, relative to what you talked about with Kyle, uh, was his talk about the uh, about a bifurcation of the economy between the digital and the non-digital. We're seeing that. We had a really dismal print on retail sales today, uh, but we're seeing Amazon, I think, $75 billion uh, increase quarter over quarter uh, in, in sales. There is this stark bifurcation going on between mom and pops who are just getting crushed uh, and large, tech-savvy, uh, well-capitalized companies. Yes, I mean, Stan Druckermill has been the guy who's been talking about this for a long time. Um, the reality is, is Mark Andreessen's genius of the comment of software is eating the world remains truer every day that we exist. And I'm looking at the world going forwards and I'm like, okay, in a world going forwards, you're probably very happy to own Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and you don't want to own General Electric, Ford, AT&T, stuff like this. I mean, these are massively indebted old economy companies. And that's I'm my focus is starting to shift on can I start shorting the high, the highly indebted triple Bs, the giant companies that nobody thinks can fail, because I think they might, um, because of the debt dynamics are so bad. So uh, that is that trade, and I don't see what changes it. That trade is also exacerbating the dollar strength trade, because the US is so dramatically outperforming because Amazon has become the world's greatest retailer. And I think I mentioned, I don't know if it was on, on this show before, but in England, we used to have every year the Sunday Times rich list. And I was always pour through it when I was young and who are these people and how do they make their money? And there's always the waves of whatever was fashionable, you know, the internet guys and then this guy, you know, whatever was going on, the, the mining guys, and then they would disappear off the list. And the, the people at the top of the list always, always, was the supermarket owners. Mm. Interesting. Like the Sainsbury family in the UK, you know, the uh, uh, the Walton family in the US. Right, these guys are always at the top of the list. And basically what Bezos did was walk in and become the world's greatest supermarket. Um, and with margins that nobody else can compete with. I mean, it's, in, it's incredible. And I, that's not going away. I mean, these usually, if I look at the UK supermarkets, obviously I grew up there, the dominance of the same names has been there for 50 years, 100 years in some cases. Same in Germany, Aldi, Lidl, these giants. These are ultra-wealthy, multi-generational families now that have completely dominated retailing. So, yes, some of these are around to stay. They're not cyclical. They're not secular. They're bigger than that. Well, the world's greatest supermarket, maybe the world's greatest retailer, 
with untouchable margins backed up by streams of rich data that no one can compete with and a world-class technical infrastructure. Yeah, That's pretty end, yeah, and as long as they don't abuse their power, they're okay. Google, not less convinced, will survive this as one company. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about Google is, you know, we, we think about all their whiz-bang technology and they're doing absolutely amazing stuff on the software development and engineering front. But their model is effectively the same model that radio stations had in the 1930s. It's advertising. Just advertising. That's it. They're just a media platform with advertising, as is Facebook. It's basically they're one-trick ponies. So the thing is, is in a advertising, even a shrinking world, they attract more so they seem to be more stable, but let's see in a more drawn out event than a one month market drop. Let's have some real, you know, a real recession. Let's see what happens to advertising budgets. And then let's see what happens to Google and, um, and Facebook. And my guess is their earnings will evaporate. Yeah. Yeah, it's a risk. Uh, it's a risk that certainly Amazon doesn't seem to face because, uh, you know, they're in, the, they're in the necessaries business. Yeah, exactly right. Well, they're in the need business. <laughs> That's very well said, but isn't you it? You the need business. I mean, we've seen it in Real Vision. We switched from a want to have to must have. Once it becomes a need, um, it's you attract much more people, and people don't go anywhere else. So it's you know, it's a very interesting point when that happens. You know, Raul, you touched on something at the beginning as we were heading into Amazon. We were talking about the old uh, old world kind of style companies, uh, indebted companies, and you talked about triple Bs. Can you give us a little bit more context, a little bit more color on why you think the triple B market is the one to watch? So I've talked about this in the doom loop on Real Vision before as part of a whole thesis of mine, which is based around the, the maximum amount of corporate debt in US history is now. That debt was driven by corporations basically wasting their own capital to buy back their shares without putting it to more effective use and efficient productive use. Those bonds got issued and went to the pension system because they wanted yield. And there was a lovely little virtuous circle. Problem with virtuous circles, as we know, can turn into doom loops when they reverse. <laughs> and the first part of it was the corporation stopped buying back their shares because they've got no cash flow because GDP is down 30%. On the other side, the pensions tended to get money in from um, taxes, particularly in, in the US um, state pensions. They get it in from taxes and they bought this, this debt. Now, this orgy of debt meant that these giant old companies could juice up any growth and their, particularly their share price by, by issuing tons of debt and become more and more leveraged. And so GE, Ford, General Motors, Dell was different because it was kind of management buyout sort of thing, but it's basically they're all massively indebted companies. And because they issued so much debt, they kept getting downgraded by the ratings agencies. And they're now this big fat tier of triple Bs, which means they're investment grade and they can sit in your pension plan. The problem is, is the moment they get downgraded and Ford got partially downgraded, they spill out and go into the junk bond market. Now, most of our pension plans can't hold junk bonds or have a much lower weighting. So that means it blows up the junk bond markets and everybody has a scramble for capital. The Fed kind of aware of this is why they try to stop that liquidity event happening. So the triple Bs are a huge concern. Now, 
people say, yeah, but the Fed are going to buy the credit now. That's what they've said. Yeah, but you watch the magic of markets. They're going to destroy the equity price. Um, it's how the way it works. Because we saw it in Europe. Well, the Europeans didn't want to let all the bank debt go to zero. So they basically backstopped all of that. Guess what? The equities go to zero. There's virtually nothing you can do about that unless you nationalize them. So, Or buy equities. Well, no, because if you buy the equities of the banks, you end up nationalizing them. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so there is no way out. You're going to nationalize the banks whether you like it or not. But it's either at an equity price of zero or somewhere higher. Right. And it's the same with General Electric. AT&T, I don't know, because it has cash flow. Problem is, it has a it's like a $190 billion market cap with $167 billion of on-balance sheet debt. So it's the most indebted private entity on earth. That's interesting. Yeah, that's AT&T. Guess why? Just like AOL Time Warner, they went and bought a bloody television business at the peak of the cycle and added a huge amount of debt. You know, AT&T bought Time Warner, and great, well done. Mark, Time Warner's fantastic for marking the top of every market. AOL Time Warner was exactly the 2001 yes. peak as well. Steve Case timed that one perfectly. Yeah, so I kind of feel like it's been done again. And this time, you know, you've got big problems with AT&T, and my guess is they'll have to entirely restructure the company at some point. But that's early days, and it's not my expertise. But I just look at the chart, and I think, that share price is going to fall 50% from here, no problem. And General Electric, I've been on that General Electric thing for five years, and I'm like, this is going to zero. Same with the European bank shares, everybody knows. I've been very vocal about that. Like, they're all going to zero. The, 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 the magnetic pull of gigantic debts in a slow-growth economy is just, you can't avoid it. It's, a, it's like a supernova just sucks everything into it. <laughs> you make this uh, destruction sound so elegant, Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a British accent. <laughs> so, you know, uh, talking about stuff. Roger's so smart. He's not smart at all. He's from Manchester. But every, you know, yes, he might have gone to Oxford, but it's because he's got an English accent and he's managed to get rid of most of his Manchester accent. Everyone thinks he's really clever. <laughs> Definitely a crowd favorite. Um, you know, talking of stocks, another thing that you touched on uh, in your conversation with Howard Marks that I thought was interesting, um, and there it, it, there was some ambiguity in it. And I'm I'm curious to know if you, upon thinking about it and further reflection, uh, have had any thoughts about the value versus growth conversation you had with Howard Marks. This is a really complicated topic, as we know, and we've discussed it a lot on Real Vision because it's very important and. There doesn't seem to be any reason for value versus growth to change. Mm. In a market downturn, maybe. But but really, I'd still rather own Microsoft and Apple than I would. Okay, Microsoft and Apple, I'd rather own than Google and Facebook for the reasons we talked about. Yeah. But God, those companies, I mean, they've got massive cash and everything else. And that's, will they do better or worse than value companies? I, I don't know. But all I know is the, the indexation trend uh, the the strong dollar trend just keeps driving those trends further. It's going to more and more decimate value investors. Eventually, obviously, it'll turn. Um, I think Mike Green may believe that it doesn't turn at all, that we're structurally done with it. I, I, I don't know. Um, we'll see. 
Yeah, and Microsoft, along with Johnson & Johnson, now the only U.S. company with a AAA rating. Oh, uh, really? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft, I mean, who'd have thought that? I mean, incredible, right? I thought they were done back in 2004, three. You're like, yeah. really? Okay, you peaked. Now there's plenty of other entrants into your space. Then they changed CEO twice. Twice. Uh, but by the time they get to the second CEO, they've retooled themselves into basically the company nobody can do anything without. Very much. And, you know, they missed the boat on the Internet. And I think Bill Gates has been pretty upfront and outspoken about it. They just missed the boat. They didn't see that coming. They didn't understand it. They didn't uh, have the opportunity to be as agile as they would have liked. And yet they built this massive behemoth. They have so many different business silos that are phenomenally profitable. They have hardware. They have cloud services. They've got their gaming business. They've got, of course, the office suite business, which is now a subscription service with recurring revenue. And of course, they've got the OS business. I mean, what's not to like about Microsoft? Yeah, I mean, probably the valuation, but other than that, I mean, you know, I'm a macro guy, so I don't really care about stocks in the individual level, but I look at that and you think, it's a great company, it's not going away yet. At some point, everything changes. You know, who would have thought that Exxon would now be, you know, putting this gigantic head and shoulders top. It looks like Exxon and all these oil companies are going to become much less significant in our lives going forwards. Nobody would have thought that, you know, right. 20 years ago. Well, that and the fact that everyone at Real Vision uh, uses a Mac, right? Yeah, we do. <laughs> We're a complete cult of Mac here. <laughs> Fanatical. And, and heaven forbid if your text message comes back, the dreaded green. Yeah. And not the blue. I don't know why it happened, but you know, I just love, I, I, I like Apple because I like brand. Um, and I like design and I just like the way they've done things. I also find that they have more integrity than others. Yeah, well, I mean, one reason for that is, I think, the leadership of the company, but, but also the fact that the thing that they're selling you is the thing that you're buying. You're not the product. It's not advertising, right? I understand the transaction. When I buy something from Apple, I buy a piece of hardware, I buy a piece of software, whatever it is I buy, I get it. I'm not having something sold to me, and I'm not having my private information used uh, in a way that maybe I don't know or understand. Did you know that Apple is not a market leader in any segment it competes in? I actually did know that, but their margins are so immense that it doesn't matter. Well, because they've identified a type of customer, which is miles smaller in size, but miles larger in money. Then they built a brand around it, which, you know, it's, it's typical of anything from jeans companies. You can be Levi's or you can be some, you know, designer jeans and, and you can charge 10 times the price for the same product, basically. You know, Gucci have done this very well and, you know, all of the... You know, LVMH done this very well. So that's what they did. They took a core customer and said, forget all of that. Give you that. We'll give you some entry-level entries into it for, for other people and then dominate that sector and give them everything they could ever need. And before you know it, your music, your television, your phones, your password, everything is embedded in the Apple system. Yeah. And you don't mind because they don't seem to be too evil. <laughs> yes, yes, that's well said. Uh, once you're once you buy into the ecosystem, it's really hard to want to go elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, I, I would, it would make me feel physically sick to have to kind of unwind myself to, from the Apple ecosystem. I would be shocked if I got an Android message from you, Ralph. <laughs>
Well, if I reply back with the dreaded green, yeah. <laughs> you'd, you'd be out of the club. <laughs> so, Raul, in the few minutes we have left, what are you going to be looking at uh, next week? What are you most eagerly anticipating? Uh, and uh, what are you looking for to confirm or disconfirm some aspects of your thesis? So I remain with two cool, two cool things that I really care about right now. One is the US dollar. I'm using the euro as my proxy. If it breaks 107.75, I think the next phase of the dollar trend, it has been bouncing off that level all week and driving me nuts. Um, so that's one. The other is I'm watching, let's say, two-year notes. You can choose anything, five years, whatever. And I want to see that come lower than... I want to see that I expect it to come from like the 15 basis points it is towards zero, which is telling us the bond market thinks that the future is not quite as rosy, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, so those are the things I'm looking um, for and I'm waiting to see. I'm watching the data out of China to see what and out of South Korea to see what level of bounce back we get. And again, I think if the economy started here, went down here, it comes up here. So that's below zero. That's what I'm looking for. It'll take a while because we'll often have the first bounce back will come above because it's pent up and then it comes back. Let's wait and see where that is. But that's the most important thing. That's what's in my mind. That's what's obsessing me. And then on the Real Vision side, there's a fantastic interview with Mike Novogratz uh, on Monday. We've got everybody from Kirill Sokoloff interviewing Lacey Hunt to Hugh Hendry interviewing his hero, Richard Werner from um, Princes of the Yen. Yeah. Um, to, in his interview with you, of course. Yes. So we've got, it's it's an embarrassment of riches of content, and not only that, but it comes it continues the week after and the week after that, because um, we had such a response from from these incredible investors saying, "Listen, can we be part of this?" That basically is going to bleed on um, with a ridiculous amount of content. Ralph, for people who aren't quite so familiar with this, can you explain a little bit about what these three weeks that we're going to be doing are and why they're so important? It all comes down to the simple question that you want to know, I want to know, your brother wants to know, your uncle wants to know, the guy on the street wants to know, every single person in the world wants to know is, okay, we're in the middle of a global recession, what happens next? And none of us know that answer, but all we can do as Real Vision is bring the smartest people in the world together for everybody to figure out what's going on. And th that's our mission, really. So we're really there to help people. And it's basically $1 to get a free trial to, to watch all this content. And it would be madness not to do that. And that's the $20 trillion question, isn't it? <laughs> well, if we can get 20 trillion subscribers for a dollar, that would be great. But I don't think it's a 20 trillion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I meant the question about this recession, where we're going, where we're going to end up yeah. next. Well, even more than that, I think it's 50 trillion of stimulus. If I'm right. We're going to be tens of trillions of stimulus at the end of this. Um, you know, that's a whole new world for Bitcoin and gold. There's a whole new world, but that's a big, long conversation for another day. So much to talk about and so much coming up in the next few weeks. Raul, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Ash, and have a great weekend, you and everybody else. Thank you. I'll take the dogs for a walk now. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.